Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised alive. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Jesus is surely the worst salesman in the history of the world, isn't he? Don't you think by modern standards, this is going to achieve nothing, Jesus? I mean, when you sell something, surely, I mean, what do I even know? But surely when you sell something, you emphasize the positives. You know, if you buy this product, you will have enormous blessings and you will be so enriched in this, this and this way and your life will be better. And when Jesus tries to sell Christianity to his disciples, he goes, look guys, if you want to buy a bit of Christianity, then it's going to mean... What does he say in verse 23? Do you you want to follow along? Whoever wants to be my disciple will have the opportunity to do something fulfilling and will influence thousands of people. Does he say that? No. Oh, Jesus. Oh, okay. Whoever wants to be my disciple will will have access to the Son of Man 24-7 in a historic place in the worldwide organization that I'm building. Does he say that? No, he could have said that to the disciples, but he doesn't say that. Does he say, whoever wants to be my disciple will be waited on by my personal angel concierge service? Does he say that? He doesn't say that. For some reason, he says this, verse 23, he actually says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That does not seem to me like an obvious sales pitch. Does it to you? It doesn't immediately land with me. Does it to you? And yet in God's wisdom, this is exactly what the church would need to hear. So let's, let's delve into this. We're returning to Luke's gospel this week and we'll stay here certainly up until Christmas. Home groups will remain in um, Proverbs 
but I'd never wanted to be too far away from a gospel on a Sunday as a sort of touchstone and a beautiful, simple explanation of what we believe about God and about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And um, if you can cast your mind back to August, if you were here, when we last um, dwelt on Luke's gospel together, Luke chapter 9 verse 20 is where we left it. And um, Peter in Luke chapter 9 verse 20 has just had the penny drop. And, he's, and Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And, G- and Peter goes, oh, you're God's Messiah. That's the, that's the moment before. You see Luke chapter 9 verse 20. He's just had that moment, that epiphany. Epiphany just means a, a revelation. And it's been like that for Christians down the ages. Maybe you've had a moment like that yourself. You went, oh my goodness, he's the son of God. He's God's Messiah. He's the chosen king. That's what Messiah means, chosen king. The one God promised. I get it now. I know many of you will have had that. I mean, that was a cliffhanger of Netflix proportions as written down by Luke for us. You know, here you go and we'll be back next week. Or as indeed, I've made you wait like, what? How long since August? Two months? Till we can dive in together. But on the edge of that cliffhanger, when Jesus restarts the next episode in the box set, as it were, Jesus is saying, right, you've got it, God's Messiah. Into that phrase that you've just understood, I want to pack as much meaning as possible. I want you to understand what I mean by Messiah, because you don't get it, disciples. You don't get this at the moment, because you want me to walk in with the head of an army and liberate the, uh, Jerusalem from the Romans. And I will have an army one day. But you need to understand mainly this one thing, which is suffering. You need to understand that the Messiah is going to suffer first before all the glory. You may remember, if you were here, um, Katie, our children's worker, taught us a memory verse, Luke chapter 24, to the tune of, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? from The Lion King. Any of you remember that? My wife says, I'm never allowed to sing in a sermon because it's unfair for all of you. So I'm just going to say it. It goes, Jesus said, The Messiah will die and on the third day rise again. This gospel of repentance and forgiveness will be preached to all the nations. Remember, some of you ringing a bell? Okay, Luke 24, 46. That's a good verse to sum up the whole of Luke's gospel. And notice, Jesus said the Messiah will die. He will suffer, it says, before he rises again. So this is written all over the gospel that you're holding in your hands. There are two musts in today's story. Can you just locate them for me? One is in verse 22, Luke chapter 9, 22. What does it say? Somebody tell me. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer. Right, there we go, thank you. So the Son of Man must suffer. So we're going to look at the two musts, and the first must is going to be about Jesus. Now he must must suffer and then regain his life. And then the second must is in verse 23. Can anyone help me out? It says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Exactly, deny themselves and take up their cross. So that will be the second must. We'll look at that together. What's Jesus, what must Jesus do? And then what must a Christian do? Does that make sense? Firstly then, what must Jesus do? Jesus must lose his life and regain it. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus must lose his life and regain it. Let's just read that verse again. And he he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He must do that. He's at pains to teach us the way of God's Messiah. It's, It's not palaces and presidential limos, according to Jesus. It's suffering. It's rejection and being killed. It's a bit like um, the shape of a tick. You know how a tick, if you're drawing a tick, it goes down and then up. 
or the Nike logo, famously, the swoosh that they've trademarked to go down, and the nap. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's, my, my path is like that. I'm going to suffer and die before the being raised to life. Or we might reflect this week, it's a little bit like being British Prime Minister. You know, uh, I, I imagine if, if you said to Liz Truss as she goes out as our Premier, you might, you might say to her, oh, being Prime Minister is great, isn't it? It's glory and, you know, 10 Downing Street and going to meet the King and lots of fabulous things. And I think she would probably say, no, uh, there's quite a lot of people out to get me, actually. You know, you kind of have to suffer the rejection of your own party and being piled on by the media until eventually you're ousted. That, that's been my experience anyway. So she certainly knows that pattern. You know, there's suffering. Perhaps there would have been glory for Liz Truss if she'd led us out of a crisis or something, but she didn't get that, that long, <laughs> did she? So the, the shape is familiar, you know. You might think to yourself, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, but th this isn't national politics. You know, this isn't, this isn't one country trying to figure out its crises. This is God's, God's plan. So why can't God circumvent the route? You know, why does God have to go down and then up again? We have to understand the, the story then. J Jesus is here resolving the biggest problem that plagues planet Earth. Ever since God uh, first created the world and mankind sinned, the human race has been addicted to something called sin. For a long time. Have you noticed that? That's why the world isn't getting any better. That's why whenever we turn over a new chapter and a new leaf or get a new prime minister, we always think, oh, maybe, maybe this is the time it gets better. And repeatedly, we're introduced to another catalogue of human sin. You know, we invent ways of suing one another or producing addictive substances that we can sell to one another or starting wars with other countries. We're really, really good at doing all that stuff to one another and indeed turning away from God. And that's why when Jesus says, this is, the, this is the path, guys, down before any glory, it's because he's got to go down, down, down. He's got to go to the very depths of it all, to the cross. He's got to, as it were, suck all the punishment for sin into himself. And only then will the planet, and indeed the human race, be released from the punishment for sin. And the upward incline will start, and Jesus will be released from the grave. Don't, really, don't miss that beautiful fact, which is part of the gospel. Verse 22, the Son of Man will be raised to life after he's suffered. Which means actually it's okay, you know, as a Christian it is okay if prime ministers come and go, it, even if kings and queens come and go, it is okay because Jesus is raised to life. He's, he's a living one who is alive forever and ever. So Jesus, we're saying in this first must, must lose his life and regain it. So far, so familiar, perhaps. You might be familiar with the shape, the story that we're talking about, although it's glorious, I never tire. Second must. Jesus' followers must lose their lives and regain them. Same shape. Jesus' followers must lose their lives and regain them. Verses 23 to 26. Look, to try and choose a, a modern example of this. I have never done a parachute jump. But I imagine, have any of you done a parachute jump? Anyone? Oh, Al Wingrove, have you? Okay. Anybody else? Oh, Joe and Helen and Dave. Did you do it together? <laughs> Separately? Oh. I imagine, is this right? If, when you get to a parachute jump, you're in the plane, and then it comes to the crucial moment that you've been waiting for, and then <laughs> presumably they, they open the door in the side of the plane, and, and at some point someone goes, jump! And every fiber in my being would be going, no! Because <laughs> you don't jump out of a plane, right? I imagine that's roughly the feeling. The adrenaline is pumping. But it must be different, presumably, if 
the plane is doomed. If the plane is going to crash, there's no other way to safety except for jumping out of, out of a hatch into the blue sky beneath with a parachute strapped to you. That must be a different feeling. And look, I'm trying to use a modern example to describe what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying there is no other way to keep your soul safe than taking up your cross and following me. So what do you want to do? Do you want to jump? Ah! Yeah, but there is no other way. This, this is the route. You go down and then up. You, you follow me towards the cross and then I'll take you to glory. Do you want to jump? Yeah, actually, if that's the only reason, if that's the only way. Of course, Jesus doesn't use parachute language. That would have meant nothing to them. He uses language that would have meant everything to them. He uses three phrases. Well, it's actually six phrases in these verses. I'll try and touch on each of them. Each of them. The first three phrases go like this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Firstly, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, just that means one who learns, must deny themselves. That means your old self is not in charge if, if you're a Christian. You have the new identity, Jesus is in charge of that, and I occasionally imagine a conversation with my old self, just to make this clear to myself, you know, when I'm tempted to do something that's not pleasing to the Lord, I have this little imaginary conversation. I say, old Pete, you know, Pete of the past, you're not in charge anymore. In the past, old Pete, you, you used to be in charge of your finances and your ambitions. You used to take charge of your sex life, of your relationships. You used to do whatever you wanted to do. But Jesus is in charge now, not you. So I'm going to deny you, old self, and I'm going to take charge. Jesus is going to take charge of me. You see what I mean? So Jesus is going to deny yourself. Second phrase he says is, is take up your cross. And this is very vivid. I actually need a volunteer. I need an able-bodied volunteer to hold a piece of wood for me. Is anyone willing? You have to hold this. Dave Harvey, thank you. Now, in, in ancient times, can you hold that in front of your chest like that? Thank you. Are you okay? Yeah. Thank you. Um, a couple of hours. Should we go? <laughs> Uh, in the ancient world, if you saw someone like Dave here holding a crossbeam from a crucifix, you were in no doubt what was going on. Let's imagine we're in um, Dave's village in the ancient Middle East, and the Roman soldiers have arrived with a little squad of soldiers, and they come with their shields and their helmets and their swords, and the captain of the guard says, David Harvey, come out, and he comes out of his hut and they hand him this. Now, this is the closest piece of wood I had available, right? But um, they would have handed him the crossbeam from a crucifix, and they would have marched him away. And you didn't need an explanation if you were a villager. You probably, we would have gathered outside our huts, and we would have watched Dave go in stony silence. It was, it was perfectly obvious what was happening. We wouldn't have seen him again. Probably within 24 hours, he would have been nailed to this very plank, this piece of wood, and part of the shame, part of the punishment was being made to carry it, bullied in front of all your friends and family as they weep and watch you go, until eventually you're strung up and left to die. And Jesus uses that analogy to say that's what it's like to be a Christian. You must be prepared to take up your cross daily. You notice the word daily, he adds that in, and, and follow me. That is to say, I want you to be prepared to die. Be prepared to give up anything to follow after me. And for many Christians in history, this has been their experience. You know, they, they were killed because people didn't like them saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar or the Ayatollah or whoever it might be. But be prepared to take up your cross. 
Should we take it from you? Thank you very much. So Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then third phrase, follow me. There is simply no glory, there is no honor, there is no heaven, there is no well done, good and faithful servant for the Christian who is not willing to follow where Jesus went. If you think being a Christian is just about turning up to church from time to time, singing a few songs, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He said, take up your cross, pick it up, and come after me. Jesus is packing a lot here into a few sentences, right? They make me, oh, what, hang on, what are you saying, Jesus? Um, it, I think, actually, on reflection, it took the apostles 22 more books in the New Testament, 22 letters, to explain, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian disciple, and so you get lots more. But you see three beautiful phrases, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's basically asking his disciples, it's the equivalent of opening the plane door and saying, jump, do you want to follow me? But he goes on to give reasons why he's worth it. So can we just look at these three things together, which are in verses 24, 25, and 26? This is all why Jesus' followers must lose their lives and regain them. I, I think of them as the paradox, the profit, and the pressure. Firstly, the paradox, under this second point, because in verse 24 he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So that's a, that's a paradox, right? A paradox is a seemingly ridiculous statement. It's, it's ridiculous to say that I have to lose my life in order to gain it, but it eventually proves true. Today's a, a world day of prayer for Iran, and it makes me think of my Iranian brothers and sisters, some of whom I've had the privilege to meet. And um, when they, often when they've given up their whole life, you know, they've given up their family because they became a Christian and... They weren't allowed to talk to them anymore. They've often given up their home country and living in that beautiful place with the amazing culture and food and the warmth of the hospitality. I've met them who came, some of them who came to live in rainy Britain on a day like today and they must think, oh, I wish I was back in Iran. But they've given up all that because of Jesus and the hope of eternal life. I recently heard one Iranian brother say, I just love Jesus so much. And I thought, but you've, you've given up your whole life. Yeah, he has, and he's still willing to say it. It seems crazy, but the way to save your life is to give it up. It's a paradox. Then Jesus talks about the prophet in verse 25. What good is it, he says, for someone to gain the whole world and, let, and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What good is it? You, you could gain everything. We've recently started playing Monopoly more in my house. My kids have started getting into it and learning the rules. And You know the Monopoly game? You get it all out and you eventually set it all up and you dispense it. And then it's quite ruthless, isn't it? Generally speaking, it's sort of, you're there to exact profit from your um, friends and family. And it can turn a bit nasty, actually. Of course, someone always wins. And usually someone's lost their temper by the time someone wins a game of Monopoly, in my experience. But what, by, the time, by the time someone has actually won Monopoly, what happens? Oh, well, well done. You, you know. And then you put it all back in the box. You've gained the whole world. You've gained all the money in the, in the box and all the property. And then, right, well, that's the end of that. What should we do now? Should we want a cup of tea? And it's a little picture of life, isn't it? You could gain everything. You could have all the money in the bank. You, you could own all the property in London. What good would it do you? Because at the end, you're going to end up in a box. You're going to have a funeral and face God just like everybody else. What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? 
And then Jesus talks about the pressure, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Isn't that amazing? You may face a great deal of pressure, but it's just compare it to what it's going to be like to see Jesus one day with an angel army. We, we wrote recently to encourage our bishop, um, the elders and the wardens and the church council, we wrote a, a letter to the Bishop of London this month because we wanted to encourage us to say, you may come under extreme pressure, Bishop. We are praying for you, but please, when that happens, please go with what Jesus says because we want to also be the type of people who, when he comes with his army, we're not ashamed and we, and we don't say, Lord Jesus, we didn't trust your word. You know, that may be a danger for you at the moment. In influential voices, they can seem so loud, can't they? People can put you under such pressure, sometimes for being a Christian, to try and squeeze it out of you. Oh, don't be like that. Oh, come on. You must go along with our way of thinking. Well, one day those people will be very quiet indeed when the massed ranks of the flaming angels stand at Jesus' back. And then I'm going to be glad that I stuck with Jesus' words. So there you go. There's the sort of six things in quick succession that Jesus says. Yes, this sales pitch. Do you want to come after me and be my disciple? Oh, here you go. What do you think? If you're anything like me, I'm sort of standing there going, um, <laughs> teetering on the edge of this great call to discipleship. Ah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Right, if that's you, if you're sort of, if you're interested but you're thinking, really? Then just, we want to look at this last thing together, okay? Because what God gives you in the gospel here is, is a, a glorious revelation of Jesus' majesty. You get this amazing transfiguration in verses 27 to 36. And I think surely the reason God has put that straight afterwards is to go, not sure, hey, let me give you a stonking revelation of who Jesus is. Then you'll be sure. Okay, so just we must taste this together before we finish. I've summarized it like this. It helps if you have a glorious revelation of Jesus, verses 27 to 36. Some people call this a transfiguration because Jesus' appearance is transfigured and changed. And uh, there are five particular things here that are so glorious about where, the way Jesus is revealed that it helps, it helps your call to discipleship. The first of the five is um, Jesus' appearance. It's changed. So in verse 29, it says his, his face was changed. His clothes became like a flash of lightning. And that was a gift of God. You know, it, it's like in Jesus' humanity, they couldn't always see who, it was, who he was, but then he went, God went, whew, here you go, this is who he really is. And oh my goodness, I can only begin to imagine what that must have been like, to see Jesus the carpenter suddenly revealed in his heavenly glory, but goodness me. They were going to need to remember that, Jesus' appearance. The second thing is that his assistants, because suddenly you get Moses and Elijah. Now if you know a bit about the Bible, that's a big deal. You get Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel's history, suddenly standing there, and it says, he, what is it? He's, he is in glory too, so he's shining in some way, looking Moses-like. And then you get Elijah, who is, I think, supposed to symbolize one of the great prophets of the Bible. So the law and the prophets suddenly talking with Jesus. And that's an amazing encouragement, right? If Moses and Elijah have put in a performance as Jesus' assistants, and they're talking about Jesus' departure, so they're obviously deferring to him. That was going to do the disciples a lot of good as they remembered who God brought to bear. Sometimes you get a sports coach who brings in you know, a great assistant coach and everyone thinks, ooh, good appointment. And here you get Moses and Elijah standing next to Jesus. And then you get his, his departure itself. So it says, um, do you see, he, they were talking about Jesus' departure or his 
Exodus. Amazing little footnote that they've just given you in your English Bible there. That is indeed an unusual word to, to use to talk about someone leaving. So they've deliberately used that Bible word, Exodus. That's what God did for e- Israel in Egypt when he freed them from slavery. And they deliberately talk about that as what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem. This has encouraged me so much this week. Can I tell you that? It's because, do you see how in control of that Jesus was? They came, Moses and Elijah came, crazy enough, to talk about Jesus' exodus, his freeing people from slavery, which he was going to bring about at Jerusalem. I'm not making this up, right? This is there in your Bible in front, in front of you. I just never had eyes to see it before. So Jesus was in complete control of his own exodus. He was in utter control of his departure. He was heading for Jerusalem. And we're going to see that as the story unfolds. And he was going to bring about his own exodus. So don't think for a moment this was a chance event in history, a tragic thing that happened to the great orator. This was Jesus bringing it about in his own time. That must have given Peter, James and John such confidence as they thought about it in the years afterwards. The fourth thing out of the five is the cloud. So in verse 34, there's this mysterious cloud. No, I'm looking forward to going to the Lake District at half term and you get a lot of clouds descending on mountains. But whenever you get it in the Bible like this, it seems to mean God's presence. This is something God is bringing about. And God brought this mysterious cloud to show that he was about to meet and do something special. And then fifthly, you get this voice. So the crowning thing in this glorious revelation of Jesus is the voice of God the Father where he adds his own voice into the picture and says in verse 35, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. What an endorsement. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than God's son and this voice comes from the clouds and this is my son. So listen to him. I've chosen him. If we're not willing to listen to Jesus when he tells us how it's going to be, we're actually going against God the Father. So there you go. That's the sales pitch in in the best way I can summarize it for you in um, a short amount of time. It's different, isn't it? I mean, in a way, you might think this is the worst sales pitch in history, but it's not. It's not if you get the glorious revelation of Jesus thrown in. It's weird. I find myself, you know, it's like he's opened the plane door and said, do you want to take up your cross and follow me? And by the time, at the end of the transfiguration, I'm going, yes, if this is who you are, then I'm going to jump. I pray to God that you might be the same with your heart. I've been helped by the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer over the years. And can I share this with you as one more example? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 1930s and 1940s. And he was a pastor during the rise of Adolf Hitler when when he was grabbing hold of Germany and raising his army. And lots of Christians went along with Hitler. Seems a strange thing now, but lots of the Christians in the churches went, oh good, you're a political leader who's making, giving us a strong country. Yeah, we'll, we'll go along with you. We'll do whatever you say. It got to the point where with Hitler, he decreed that the only thing you can have on your communion table was not a cross. You weren't allowed a cross or a Bible. You could only have a sword and a copy of Mein Kampf, his book. That was it. But he'd interfered in church life to the extent that you wouldn't have been allowed this. And most of the Christians in Germany went along with him and said, okay, if that's what you say. And a few Christians stood up like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and said, no, that was Jesus is Lord, not you. And he, he, he wrote about this concept of cheap grace. That is, you think that you can have the, the, the grace of God, you know, the offer of the gospel along with everything else. You can't. And he wrote... Um, 
cheap graces, preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. You know, Jesus is offering you everything in the gospel, but you have to take it on his terms. It's not just a cheap option that you can load into your trolley along with everything else. It's like being asked to jump out of a plane or take up your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed two weeks before the end of World War II, but his influence is still present. There's a very unhappy baby downstairs, so I better finish in a moment. Um, but uh, shall we just finish with the very good news? Jesus' must always comes before your must. You know, there's two musts in today. Jesus always does it this way. If, if we're talking about what we must do, then I'm going to go first. I'll jump out of the plane. I'll take up my cross. I'll do way more than I'm ever going to ask you to do. I must suffer and die, and then I'm inviting you to follow. That's the very good news of the gospel. He was absolutely determined to bring about the exodus that way. So I wonder, my friends, will you follow Jesus today? Look, we're not living in the 1940s, thankfully, but we are living in the 2020s. Will you follow Jesus? Maybe he's calling you to give something up for him at the moment. It might seem so massive to you, you couldn't possibly give it up for Jesus. Well, you need a glorious revelation of the Son of Man. Perhaps God, God has already given one to you in the past. And I think sometimes, you know, when you've had a really sweet time of communion with God in your life, and you might look back at that a bit nostalgically and think, that was a good time. That was a good time spiritually. I was really close to God then. Yeah, but he still gave it to you. Sometimes because of circumstances or life, you, you can't get back to exactly that place. But God gave you that as a gift. So you can think, even if I only had that, that would be enough for me. That was my glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's enough for me to go on with. Or it may be that he's going to give you a glorious revelation of Jesus now, you know, from now on. Maybe you could ask God for that and find him in the scriptures. That's often the way he does it. People crying out to God and he gives it to them through the Bible. Will you follow Jesus? Maybe you're, you were expecting God just to add luxury on luxury to your life. Do you see that's not actually the terms of the offer? It, Jesus doesn't say that. That's not the sales pitch. The sales pitch is, do you want to be my disciple? Come and follow me. He offers you his son with the many blessings that come with Jesus Christ, but he also calls you to take up your cross and follow him. That's the offer. If you want to go and try and gain the whole world as well, then you go and try and do that, but you will end up forfeiting your soul. Or maybe, my friend, you are under intense pressure at the moment to be ashamed of Jesus' words, and perhaps you could simply use this phrase, I am not ashamed of the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, it seems so much to us. That it, mean, it seems so much that you would call us to take up our cross and follow after you. And yet, and yet, Jesus, we see you walking ahead of us. And we see you carrying the cross. And we see you laying down your life. And we're, we're in awe of your, your glory, of your goodness, your kindness. We love the path that you've trod. We, we see you arranging your own exodus at Jerusalem. And my heart says, yes, I'll follow, I'll follow that Messiah. 
So Lord Jesus Christ, we lift up our hearts to you today. We pray that where it is hard and genuinely difficult, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would meet us, fill us, give us the grace to carry that heavy cross, we pray. And buoy us up with uh, this knowledge of who our Saviour is. We pray it in his name. Amen.